Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is John Stober. Thanks for being on the show, John. Whitney, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, honored to have you on the show, John. Look forward to hearing more about your story and this current deal that you're working on. I know it's going to be a great discussion around that and some things you've learned and are doing behind the scenes, I think that a lot of people don't normally think about or don't see. But days before graduating from college, John realized the nine to five world was not a good fit for him, which led him to real estate investing. After doing a couple smaller deals, John doubled down on his strengths, which are financial modeling and crunching numbers uh, to add value to multifamily teams and leverage the operational experience of others. This was only possible through constant branding and networking. John, welcome to the show. Give us a little about maybe that nine to five position that you had and how that gave you skill. It sounds like it helped you help to prepare you to have some very valuable skills to enter into the real estate business. Yeah, it has. And don't get me wrong. I'm actually very appreciative for my nine to five. I still work there. But I was kind of bred for the nine to five W2 world ever since I can remember like talking and walking, you know, it's always been go to school, get a good job, work hard and retire. And right before I graduated from college, I'd spent my entire last semester looking for a job. I finally got the job offer and I'm looking over, you know, how much money I'm going to make and really how much vacation time I was going to have off every year to go traveling, you know, skiing and having fun with my friends. I was just like, this isn't going to work for my lifestyle. I'm not going to have enough days off and I'm not going to frankly make enough money to do the things I want to do in life. And that ultimately led me on a journey to achieve passive income and financial independence. And I looked at a couple options, you know, I looked at dividend stocks, bonds, CDs, and none of them just produced the type of income that I needed. I would need like a million dollars in the bank, which was going to take a long time to save up. And I kind of stumbled on real estate investing and I like came to Bigger Pockets website and then I ended up buying one of Brandon Turner's books, read it, and I kind of caught the bug right then. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a real estate investor and I'm going to achieve financial independence before I'm 30 years old. I was 23 at the time. And so that kind of just like led me down the real estate rabbit hole where I did a couple smaller deals before transitioning into the multifamily space. So you were 23 and you were determined to gain financial independence by the time you were 30. Were there some steps there you put in place or anything that you learned at that point that would help the listener to accomplish that same thing? At the time, I was just soaking up as much knowledge as I could. I mean, I didn't know building operations, how to finance properties, really anything you need to be successful in this business. And it was just reading like tons and tons of books and listening to tons and tons of podcasts, trying to figure out like, how are people being successful in this business right now? Plus, if you listen to podcasts, like it gives you an opportunity to connect with people because often at the end, they're like, reach out to me on Facebook. Here's my cell phone number. This is my email address. You know, this is how you contact me. And then you can start to develop that Rolodex. For sure. No, that's awesome. Anything looking back now that would have helped you to achieve it faster or that you wish you had done differently? You know, honestly, there's nothing that I can actually think of. Like, I think everything that happened led me to where I am today and all the mistakes I made were just 
learning lessons that I can build on for the future. Nice. Well, yeah, I want us to jump right into this current deal. And I want us to talk a little about that. There's numerous other things we'll talk about. But ultimately, this deal, there's some things that we talked about before we started recording that I think will add a lot of value to the listener as well. Maybe give us a minute or two also on getting to this deal. Had you done a deal before? What were the deals before that you had worked on and getting up to where you're at now? So I had done two deals before and they were very small deals. My first was just like a two unit house hack that I bought with FHA financing. For those who don't know, house hacking is when you buy a multi-unit or even a big single family and you rent out the other units or other bedrooms while living it in yourself and you essentially live for free. It's a great way to get started. It's very low money down because you get owner-occupied loans and you're actually there at the property while you're learning how to be a landlord. So that was overall really good experience. And then I did a pretty big flip after that because I wanted to learn how to rehab properties. And that was very, very painful for me because I have no background with renovations, rehab and construction. Well, I do now. I have some like experience, but at the time I had none. So that was just a really long drawn out process. And I mean, that was actually that flip that was like, I'm going to go do multifamily because I can use my strengths of crunching numbers and basically being a glorified spreadsheet jockey. And the deals are big enough where I can have partners who they can bring other skill sets, such as like the construction management and the operational experience. If you got a $30,000 flip and you got to bring in two partners, you're making 10 grand each. But if you have a big multifamily deal where there's potentially hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars at the end, now, when you start to split it up three or four ways, you know, the profits, they're still pretty big for everyone at the end of the day. Yeah. You tried that flip. And from what you said, it didn't sound like it went very well or it was very painful, you said. And so learning from that, it sounds like you then focused on what was in your house, what you were really good at. And that was spreadsheets, crunching numbers, financial management. Is that accurate? Yep. That's exactly what happened. I tell people this often, you know, real estate is such a team sport, especially in commercial real estate. We are doing very large deals. The fastest way to get somewhere, I find, and it was for me personally, you know, wasn't to try to master everything or to try to do every part of the business that we just couldn't imagine without our entire team. But, you know, it was for me, it was like focusing on what I'm good at and finding people that were really good at those other things. That helped us to move so much faster. Sounds like what you did as well. Yeah, I spent like probably one to two years like really learning how to underwrite deals so I could double down on that skill set. Nice. So you already had a skill set there and then you just kept pushing to be the best at that thing that you could possibly be. And that adds a ton of value to other people or gives you the ability to do that. Okay, so now let's let's move into that the current deal. What is that? Where is it? What size is it? What's going on there? Yeah, so we have a pretty heavy value add going on right now in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's a 34-unit portfolio made of, you know, it's an 18-unit property and 16 unit property. And when we bought this deal, I think it was like 35% economically occupied. We bought it in the middle of COVID. So it was this eviction moratorium, getting tenants out has been hard. But what I think is really interesting about this deal and what I think could add a lot of value is because the occupancy was so low when we bought it, when we normalized our expenses, the net operating income was actually negative. Like before you even put debt on the property, it was losing money. And I think like a lot of people, especially if they're just learning how to analyze deals, they're going to go, okay, like net operating income's negative. Cap rate in the market is like 7%. Well, hmm, the seller should actually be paying me for the property if we take net operating income over cap rate. And it doesn't really work like that because the land and the actual physical building, they're worth something. Think of a distressed single family house that you're going to do a bird deal on. 
you know, let's say it's worth like in its current condition, it may be worth $0, but if you put 60 K into it, it might be worth 200. Some investor is going to be able to pay like 90 to a hundred grand for that or whatever it is more than $0 because of what the property is going to be worth at the end of the day. Whereas if this was commercial, you'd be going, oh, well, it produces no income. You know, the seller should be paying me. Yeah, write an offer like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're going to give me $50,000 and I'll take this property off your hands. No, like no one's going to agree to that. But if you view it like a flip or a burr on a single family rental, which is what we did on a per unit basis, you can start to see how you can actually pay money for some of these deals. So like in the, in the Little Rock deal, yes, negative net operating income on day one. But we bought it for... All in, it was 800,000. So it's like 23 and a half K per door. And if we put five to 10 grand per unit into renovations, those units are renting for 650 to $700 now. So by the time it's stabilized, those units are going to be worth, I mean, their sales comps like over 50 K for the one property and over 40 K for the other. So it's like, okay, 23 K, say 10 K of rehab, there's going to be like some holding costs reserves, things of that nature. So let's say you're all into these units for 35K. Well, if they sell for 50K, you just made a $15,000 spread on, frankly, what's a low cost per unit. It's a huge margin. And so if you're just going to take that, like look at it as a burr, it's worth 50, we're in for 35. If we can refinance at 75% LTV, we're going to pull out all of the money that we put into the deal and then probably some more, or we just sell it and we capture that 15K spread. Okay, taking a bunch of notes there. No, that sounds awesome. I mean, especially going 23K per door, you're going to add 10. Let's say you even added 12, and then you could sell at 50K per door. You're doing well. How do you normally, and you just explained a lot of it, maybe you can go a little more in depth and like just the mindset of evaluating on the flip mentality or burr versus cap rate. I think when you get in a property the size, it's hard to think through that or hard to even speaking to a broker about how we're valuing that property like that. Well, so I think the more distressed a property gets, the less important the cap rate gets. So if you're going to buy something turnkey or like very, very light value in, then you're probably going to look more at the market cap rate and see what type of premium or what type of discount you're buying. Because if it's turnkey, there's just not a lot of value for you to add where you can raise net operating income. But as the property becomes more of a value add deal, if it's a six cap market, maybe I can buy it at a four and a half cap raise net operating income and get it up to an eight cap. And then I can sell it for six. And that's how you end up buying things for like, you're buying for 20K door, putting 10K in and you're selling it for 50. And as you get into this really, really heavy stuff where it's like distressed, I mean, the cap rate, it goes out the window because sometimes these properties, they will be losing money. And that's where looking at things on like a cost per unit basis becomes really helpful. And look at the sales comps in the market. So like in ours, Sales comps were going for over 50K a door. So, okay, sellers asking for 23.5K, we're going to have to put 10K into it. Just think of it like that flip. So, renovation plus acquisition, we're in for 33K. ARV is 50K. That's like 66% of ARV. And if you're going to go off the flipping rule, you know, it should be ARV is 70% of the purchase price minus the renovations. And it's a little different for multifamily because you have tenants in there that pay a lot of your holding costs. But like on a very high level, it's kind of the same process. And how did you find this property? Actually, one of the partners I'm working with on the deal, she found it and 
you know, we developed a pretty good relationship. So I just ended up joining her joint venture. Nice. So what's the seller's mentality? I mean, like, why are they selling or do you know? So I actually didn't have too much interaction with this seller, but from what I can tell, this was just like a mom and pop landlord who was completely mismanaging the property. They weren't doing any sort of tenant screening in there. So there was super high delinquency and they were letting the property go. So my understanding of this is they just wanted out of the deal. And because it was so distressed, there weren't a ton of buyers that could come in or were actually interested in buying it. Yeah, and besides the fact that they're losing money, at least at this point anyway. And how did you get financing on a property like that? The seller actually had to finance it through a master lease option because wow, yeah, income was so low that banks didn't want to touch it. Interesting. So you did a master lease option. Tell me the inner workings of that or terms of that master lease option and what that looks like for this property. So master lease option, the way I understand it, it's a form of seller financing. Like true seller financing is when the seller owns a property free and clear, say it's worth 100K and they're going to finance $75,000 of it. On this property, it was a little different because the seller had a loan on it. So we couldn't just get seller financing because the bank and the title company would not have allowed it because the bank's in first position. So where the master lease option comes in, or you might hear it called a wrap mortgage is we have an agreement with the seller where like we have an amortization schedule with him. And then we're paying the seller's like bank. It's called a wrap because we're going around the seller and paying their mortgage for them to their lender but then we have our own principal and interest schedule with the seller. So when we actually do go to refinance or we do go to sell it, they're going to take the principal that we've paid off and subtract it from the loan balance that we have with them. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't know if too many people have successfully done it, a master lease option. So congratulations to you to finding a deal where that would work and making it happen. And so ultimately you all are going to add value to this property, right? You're going to make sure the loan's paid. You're going to do that seller such a favor there and him make a little money potentially along the way as well. But then you get first option to buy it, right? You do a refi and then it's your, you buy it from him and then he makes a little money then too. So it's a win-win. He gets out from under the management, you improve the property and then it's yours, right? Eventually. Tell me about selling that deal to investors. How much are you all raising from investors? And then how do you think through these numbers and explain something like a master lease option to your investors? So that's a really good point and question you bring up, Whitney. Because I think on the surface, everyone loves seller financing. Like everyone wants to get a seller finance deal. The thing about seller financing is if it's a big rehab you get no rehab costs in your loan. It's just the purchase price. Whereas if you get like a hard money loan or a bridge loan, they're funding a lot, sometimes all of your renovation costs. So it brings your raise amount down a lot. So this is seller financing, which means we had to go, we're raising money for our rehab. And we have lenders that are lending out money at a fixed interest rate. And pretty much the way we're pitching it to them is, okay, there's a bunch of non-performing units in this property. We bought them for 23 and a half K door. We need your $10,000. Mr. Lender is going to probably rehab two units. Right now, those two units aren't performing. Once we get them up, renovated and rented, two units are going to produce $1,300 of income for us a month. And there's some variable expenses like the property management fee, but pretty much that rent is going to go straight to our bottom lines and back into our pockets. So if you're going to lend us 10 grand, let's say that it's at 12%, that is going to be 1% a month, 
which is a hundred bucks a month. Well, we just generated an extra twelve to thirteen hundred dollars of income off of your loan, and we only have to pay you a hundred bucks. So we can easily do that. And we're still going to have more cash flow for ourselves and to pay our expenses. So paying your interest, that's not going to be an issue with this loan. The other thing is, okay, so you just lent us the $10,000. Now we're all into this unit for, if it's a 10 grand renovation per unit, we're in it for 33K. Well, at ARV per unit is now 50K. So if we go to sell it, We've generated more than enough equity to pay you off. And even if we go to refinance it, 75% of 50K is 37.5K. We're all into the unit for at most 35. So even with a refi where you're not capturing all of the equity, there's still more than enough to pay you back. Nice. So you mentioned debt uh, numerous times talking about that investor. So are they debt investors or are they equity investors? These are debt investors. It's private lenders. Okay. So private lenders, they're debt investors. They're not an equity investor. So you'll do a refi, you'll pay them off and then it'd be your deal. Right. Exactly. And then what is the business plan? I go a little further into like, how long do you plan to hold this? Do you plan to do that type of refi or sell, you know, eventually, or how long do you expect the renovation and stabilization to take? We have a couple business plans and a couple exit strategies. Right now I say we're in what's called phase one. We're getting rid of all the non-paying tenants rehabbing the units and then leasing them up. And that is taking a little longer than you would ideally want because of COVID and the eviction moratorium. But once we get the property to a point where the net operating income is actually high enough to go get financing, we have a decision to make. And we're very close to that number right now, by the way. But at that point, we have a decision to make. Are we going to go refi? Probably into a construction loan so we can finish off the renovation And then while they do another refinance or it'll just convert to permanent debt and then we'll probably hold it for five years. Or once we get the occupancy high enough to where someone else can get financing, do we just flip it, get these two properties on our track record and go to the next deal? So what I'm thinking of when I have to make that decision is how's the area, how's the market and how's the property? So if these were like in A-class areas and let's say we're getting B-class tenants, that's the type of property I'd want to hold on to for a really long time because the cash flow is probably going to be good and there's a very good chance of getting market appreciation. Also, it's like over 100 units. That's a consideration too because you get full-time staff and I think it would become a lot more passive. But so if this deal's a little smaller, it's not in an A location and it's definitely more like C-class residence. So that's the type of deal where I think, do I really want to own this long term? Or do I want to take my equity back and put it into something that's like a B-class property in an A area where I can just let it sit? And in this case, I don't know if the market appreciation is going to be there because it's smaller. It could definitely be more management intensive and take my time away from looking for other deals, just doing other things I want to do. And then it's an older property too. So I think there's definitely going to be CapEx, high repairs and maintenance going forward. So for something like this, I would definitely lean more towards like the flip, go buy something better. But I mean, it's hard to argue with $700 rents that you're all into for like 35K a door too. So John, with what you've been doing this deal and other deals and what you know about underwriting, what do you foresee say happening or predict to happen just in the real estate market over the next six to 12 months? And how does that affect your all's business model? Uh, (laughs) You know, I think COVID is still going to be 
very impactful. We're already seeing it, especially on our C properties. A lot of the tenants we inherited, they don't have jobs, like they're unemployed. And even the ones that we've screened, it's a little nerve wracking because if you're in a C property, they're often in the service industry. So they're going to work, they're at risk of catching COVID and they could potentially bring it back to your complex and spread it to other people. So that's a little nerve wracking. As far as like what's going to happen in the next to nine months, I think we're still going to see pain at least until they stop extending this eviction moratorium. Like our rehabs are taking longer. So is our lease up process. But I think if you can make it through that multifamily is still a great asset class. You can still get really high returns for pretty good level of risk. So if you have properties, I'd just say, in my view, just try to hold on and weather the storm because I think there's sunshine at the end of this. Is there a way that you all were prepared to weather a storm that we could also use to be prepared? Well, I know what we're doing now on all of our new market rate leases, we're signing month to month. And then for the inherited tenants, most of them were already on month to month. So if they're not paying, we can still just not renew their lease and we can try to get them out for tenant holdover. I think looking for ways to get rid of non-paying tenants through breach of lease instead of failure to pay rent. At least for us, that's been our best way to get people out of there. Like this eviction moratorium, it only applies to people who aren't paying rent. So if you've got like a violent resident or someone who's breaking the rules, you can still evict them. And we've had some success with that. Interesting. So that's a great point to bring up. What does that eviction moratorium affect exactly? It doesn't mean you just can't evict anyone for anything, right? That's a very valuable point. John, what daily habits do you have or that you could share with us that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? I'm pretty diligent about time blocking. So I need to get stuff done. It's on my calendar and like my powers and where it's getting done at that time. And, you know, one thing I've done for a long time is I just exercise every day, which, you know, it's not everyone's thing. For me, I feel like it makes my mind really clear. And after a day at the office, it gives me a chance to like take 30, 60 minutes just to take a break, recharge. And at the end of that workout, like I'm usually feeling great and I'm ready to get back to it. What's your best source for meeting new investors right now? Probably social media. I mean, social media can be great. You can go to an in-person meetup with 50 people, or if you have a big social media platform, you know, you can reach thousands of people at one time. And then it's kind of like the beginning of your investor funnel. So definitely social media. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? No, I think it's just discipline. For me, when I put my mind to something, I just go all out and I make a commitment. Yeah, so being disciplined. And how do you like to give back? We like to create our own content and we have our own podcast and just leverage the success and the knowledge of other experts and then sharing that knowledge with others. Awesome. Well, John, a pleasure to get to know you a little better and really hear just details about this deal, how you valued it, but then also just a cap rate versus just like a flip mentality or burst strategy and just going through those details of a difficult property here, but you all were able to make it happen and even did the master lease option, which you don't hear of very often, but I think it's a great tool to have in your tool belt uh, just in case you find that seller that's in the situation like you had and you can go in there and perform and add value to not only him but especially to yourself and be able to purchase a property through that and so congratulations to you and your group and just making that happen and utilizing something like that so tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you so I'm pretty active on Facebook. So reach out to me at John Stober, send me a message, friend request. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And then we have our own podcast called the Millennials and Multifamily Podcast. So if you want to learn more about us and hear our guests, you can check that out. And we have a free book called How to Analyze Big Apartment Buildings and Make Them Feel Small. It's kind of just like underwriting 101 
And you can get a free copy of that at bit.ly forward slash underwriting ebook. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.